This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and hey there, partner. On today's show, we're strapping on the mailbag and diving into a pile of your letters. Wondering about this crazy Roth IRA thingy, or maybe about figuring out your financial plan? We got those covered and lots more on today's show. Plus, in our headline segment, a secretary just passed away after amassing a huge fortune. We'll share stories of people nobody suspected of piling up lots of Benjamins. We're going to throw out the Haven Lifeline and supply you with some of my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who are ready to take a paper cut for the team while answering your letters, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. And a happy good morning to you. It's always morning in the basement. Wait, that doesn't sound as good as I thought it would. <laughs> it does. I don't even know what that means. Hey, everybody. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across this card table from me to kick off another week with you and I, it's the one, the only, the OG. Not the fake one, though. And not the last one. You're not the last OG. You're the first OG. <laughs> Have you watched that show yet at all? I heard it's great. Yeah, I don't know. I got I to gotta catch it up. Yeah. <clears throat> You know what else is great? My RX bar. Well, I can bar. tell you what's good. I got it right here. <laughs> Do you really? I'm ha- half d- see right here, half done. I, <laughs> while you talk about this deliciousness, I'm going to finish my breakfast. Yes. Well, healthy mind equals healthy wallet. Isn't that a saying? That's what Mom says. Thanks to RX bar for supporting Stacky Benjamins. RX bar is a whole food protein bar with no BS. Get 25 percent off your first order. RxBar.com forward slash SB. Use promo code SB. That's rxbar.com, SB, promo code SB. We're also brought to you today by College Backer. I don't even know this, OG, but college is expensive. Yeah, so I've been told. Big thanks to College Backer for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Sign up at collegebacker.com slash SB, and you know what? You'll get a $10 match when you start a college fund for your own family or send a gift to kick off someone else's college fund. Wouldn't that be nice? That's a gift that keeps giving. Here, here's 10 bucks toward college. Good luck getting the 80000 <laughs> <laughs> that you still need every bit helps right every bit man uh it's great stuff speaking of great stuff today you are in the driver's seat folks because we are all letters all the time but first we're gonna get to your headlines hello darlings and now it's time for your favorite part of the show our stacking benjamin's headlines 
I'm still swishing down my uh, RX bar. Hold on. You talk. Our first headline comes to us from NBC News. Sylvia Bloom, a frugal secretary, hit a $9 million fortune. She joins a list of secret millionaires. Sylvia Bloom, a legal secretary who worked at the same firm for nearly seven decades, lived a modest life in Brooklyn, riding the subways to work most days. But unbeknownst to her friends and family, she was a closet millionaire. The frugal secretary who died in 2016 quietly amassed a fortune of more than $9 million through through a string of savvy investments. In her will, she left $6.24 million to the Henry Street Settlement, a local social services group, along with another $2 million split between Hunter College and a scholarship fund. Bloom is far from the first person to discreetly cultivate riches while living a life of apparent thrift. Uh, And then they go through some other people. A janitor with a knack for picking stocks. Ronald Reed, a former gas station attendant and janitor, died in 2014. He was known as a private and pennywise man. And uh, he had an $8 million nest egg. And then we go down to a librarian who saved nearly every penny he earned. Robert Morin passed away in 2015 at 77. He had $4 million. A secretary, Grace Groner, scooped up clothes at garage sales and lived in a Spartan one-bedroom house in Lake Forest, Illinois, survived the Great Depression, of course. I say, of course, but um, but some people might not know. You know, it's funny, when, when I was a kid, this is an old man story, OG. When I was a kid, people that lived through the Great Depression, whenever mom would see people that were very frugal with their money, she'd always say, well, they lived through the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. We'd always have those yeah. depression stories. Now they're going to say people lived through the Great Recession. Right. I lived, through, that one. I lived through 2008. I was alive when Hannah Montana became Miley Cyrus. That's what people say now. Yeah, I bet they do. <laughs> uh, anyway, Grace Groner died in 2010, had a $7 million estate. Stealthy wealthy. What do you think of that? You know, I, I think it's where we get the phrase to each their own, because I just, I couldn't imagine having that money and not enjoying it, you know? What if their ultimate joy was to leave it to the or to get, school or to, or to the get more? I mean, maybe they just enjoy saving money. Maybe that's their, their mm-hmm. thing. See, I think that there are two great crimes in our uh, financial planning world. And the one that gets all the press, of course, is under saving, right? That's uh the one that everybody focuses on, everybody worries about, and, and it's catastrophic, right? You get to retirement at age 60, and you've got $38,000 in your IRA. You're screwed. You're working until you die, you know? But I think an equally great crime that's underreported, which is this one, is oversaving. And, you know, don't hear whether or not these these people had any family nearby or kids or or spouses or other loved ones or whatever, but I don't like the idea of, hey, I've got $11 million, never went to Disney, you know, never took my grandkids to Disney, never took my kids to Disney. And there's people who would say, oh, but Disney's overrated. Well, first of all, it's not. It's not overrated. It's <laughs> expensive. I'll give you that. But it's the greatest place in the world, right? I mean, it's like super awesome. Or there's people that have never seen the Grand Canyon or, you know, the Eiffel Tower or whatever the case may be. Meanwhile, you've got $10 million in the bank. That's almost as much of a disease, I think, right? And, and I think it is a disease for some people. I had a client that was oversaving. We kept telling him he took overtime every chance he got. He was an hourly worker. 
his wife complained that they never did anything. They had these trips they wanted to go on. They never did that. And then, and then he got diagnosed with a disease that he thought was fatal. And he was told that he probably had three years to live. And you should see the way that his life changed. I mean, all of a sudden, they were taking the trip to Alaska that they always wanted to take. They were going to Hawaii. They were doing all of these things. And he stopped taking overtime. And she said to me privately that even though he was passing away, it was a fantastic time for the two of them. They were finally, right. they were finally doing the things that they wanted to do together. Here's the kick in the teeth. He found out about six weeks later when they went for a second opinion that it was a misdiagnosis and he wasn't going to die. And you know what he did? He canceled the trip to Alaska. It, it, I mean, it's just a sickness. He canceled mm. the trip to Alaska. He mm. starts taking on the overtime again, even though I'm looking him in the eye, telling him he doesn't have to do it. His wife is telling him that, you know what? We're finally doing all these things we want to do. And you, and, and he just... You could yeah. you could see it in his it's it was like a sickness. Yeah. It really seemed yeah. to be a sickness. It was horrible. You know, I think this is one of the strengths of ongoing financial planning work is that it gives you the permission, like you were talking about with your client, it gives him him and his wife the permission to say, You're good, right? You can you can do that. You can let off the gas on savings. You can now enjoy a little bit of this now. Or if you don't save this twenty thousand dollars this year, instead you spend it on a family, you know, extravaganza safari, here's the impact to your overall financial plan. You have to work another year to offset that, you know, today. But some people will do that trade, right? You know, it's that whole, do you have kids when you're young? And so they get up, they go out, and then they're done, and then you're old and they're gone. Or do you have kids a little bit older so you're young and can have fun, and then, but you're saddled with children? <laughs> saddled? Yeah, Okay three of them maybe even for like your entire life, you know, like during your <laughs> peak earning years, you know, there's, there's never a right way to do it. But, um, when it comes to your unique financial planning, I think it's really important to understand those trade-offs and, you know, Hey, if your goal is to die with $10 million, that's awesome, but you better have a plan for it along the way, right? To enjoy a little bit. Our second headline comes to us from Napa-Net, the National Association of Plan Advisors. Has HSA enrollment stalled? I've found this interesting. While both the number of and enrollment in health savings accounts has grown significantly since HSAs first became available in 2004, data suggest the growth may be slowing. In 2017, enrollment estimates in HSA-eligible health plans vary considerably from 21.4 million to 33.7 million policyholders and their dependents, according to a new report. But according to the nonpartisan Employee Benefit Research Institute, there is one consistency between the enrollment estimates, most sources show that growth appears to have slowed in 2017, especially when looking at the market share of HSA-eligible health plan enrollment. The report acknowledges it can be challenging to determine how many people enrolled in HSA-eligible health plans and how that number has been changing. Indeed, the report notes that for the most part, there are just a handful of surveys used to determine the number of people enrolled in HSA-eligible health plans. I think this is bad news. If it's true, if, if HSA enrollment is slowing... I think people are just starting to figure out how HSAs can be a huge part of your financial plan, OG. Well, I wonder if it's because, you know, the other side of that coin, which is the health insurance premiums are changing as well. You know, to be eligible for the HSA, you have to have a high deductible plan. 
those premiums have gone up quite a bit over the last decade as well, right? So is that kind of eating into that quote unquote available extra good. money that uh, people were putting in the HSA? Good point. Excellent point. Excellent. Yes, I know. Best, I said it. Best point ever. Uh, best I, point ever. Yeah. I do love this idea though of an HSA and both of my kids immediately when they started their new jobs went into HSA plans because being young and being healthy, it's, it's fantastic. And I had letters last time we talked about HSAs telling me that you don't even necessarily need to be healthy for an HSA to really make sense in, in your corner. So HSAs can be, uh, well, I mean, effectively it's just another retirement account. If you don't use it for, if you manage to make it through your entire life, quasi healthy, right. And you can dump 3,700 bucks a year into it or 6,700 if you're married. Well, and I think even the bigger thing is pay out of pocket your expenses, keep the receipts and let that money that you didn't use for health expenses, let that of course continue to accumulate. And you're really paying for your, your expenses later on with interest, you know, yeah, you're letting the exactly. interest pay for it. Good stuff. We'll link to both of these headlines in our show notes at stackybenjamins.com. But I think that the takeaways here, number one, HSA, use it, baby. And number two, you're a millionaire and you're spending nothing. Maybe head to Disneyland. Or send me to Disneyland. Send us. <laughs> Well, the mailbag is fairly full, so we thought we would dive in for the second time in two weeks. We love these shows, and we uh, feel bad that we're getting so far behind. So, by the way, part of the reason we're behind is because the Haven Lifeline is empty. And it's funny, OG, even when I wrote people telling them, hey, guess what? You just put your letter in a pile that we're going to answer in about three months. So, right to the- People are shy to be on the radio. I know. I know. I mean, look at- one of the co-hosts is pretty shy to be on the radio. Yeah, good point. I know I so, am, but what about you? Let's talk about you. Uh, <laughs> this first one is comes to us from Marissa. Marissa writes, Hi, Joe and OG. My husband's trying to do a mega backdoor Roth contribution for the first time ever. He made too much income for us to contribute to his regular Ooh. Roth IRA. Yay, she writes. He made post-tax contributions to his work 401k. And a few months later called the fund manager to roll that money to his Roth IRA. My question is, they asked him what to do with the gains. He told them to roll it into the Roth, so that's what they did. I thought the gains had to be kept separate from the initial contribution. Can he do anything now, or is it too late? What should he do next time? Thanks for your help, Marissa. Is it too late, OG? Well, yes, it's too late to do anything with those contributions, or actually those earnings, right? That's what you're talking about here. And effectively, what happened is you made a non-deductible contribution to a retirement account. So now we have to think about how do we get that money out and into Roth so those gains are tax-free forever. During that period of time, over that year, however long it was, where he made those contributions, that money grew. It did something over that period. And in this case, it made some money. So by electing to take the the gains and put it into the Roth, you'll get a small tax bill. You'll get a 1099 next year uh, at tax time for that. And you'll have to pay a little bit of tax on that. But that's probably not the end of the world. I prefer to put all the gains in there anyways. So the more you can get in the Roth, the better, even if it means you have to write a small tax check this year to do that. So I don't think you did anything wrong. I would continue to do it the way that you did it. Thanks for the question, Marissa. 
Uh, next question comes to us from Brian. Brian says, just heard a podcast. Man, he's going way back. 1023-2017. I don't even remember that one. Where are you? T- oh, was I, I did. It? it was the best one we ever had. It was the second best one. This is the best. This, one. That's right. Yeah, nearly the pinnacle. Where you talked about form 8606 and you confused the hell out of me. Thanks. In years past, I've had various 401k options. Job one had a Roth 401k. When I left, I moved it out of the 401k and converted all the employer money to the Roth so that it's 100% Roth IRA. Job two, regular 401k. When I left, I rolled it over to the first job 401k bucket and converted it to Roth as well. Job three, regular 401k. And like the last one, converted that to a Roth as well. So this entire bucket is 100% Roth money. All that's held at T. Rowe price and I paid the taxes out of pocket. Then on the side, I have two Roth IRAs with Vanguard that I use for myself in the wife's $5,500 a year limit bucket. That way I have my 401k job bucket and my own IRA bucket separated. Do I need to file form 8606? Thanks again. And what's mom making for dessert tonight? Well, Brian, we might talk about what she's making for dessert a little later, but right now let's go to form 8606. What is, by the way, for people that missed that epic episode where we talked about this amazing form, 8606, which, which by the way, we've decorated the basement with. It's wallpaper. What is it? What is form 8606? That's the form you're going to use when you have to report your non-deductible IRA contributions. See, the thing is, is that when you make non-deductible contributions, the reason you want to keep track, you don't have to, but the reason you want to is later on in life when you go to take money out of your IRA, you have the ability to take out some of your contributions. And it's prorated based on the value of the overall account. So in theory, if over your lifetime you made tons of non-deductible contributions, you didn't receive any tax benefits on those, you should be able to take those dollars out again without paying taxes. Well, to do that, you have to keep track of it. And so uh, this is the form in which you use to do that. Uh, In Brian's case here, he doesn't need it. All of his contributions have been put into the Roth. It's all tax-free. Bada boom, bada bing. Good to go. Thanks for the question, Brian. Our next question comes to us from Sheldon. Sheldon says, hello, Joe and a G. I'm trying to help my mother determine whether she can contribute to an IRA. My parents are married. My father owns farm property in California. Some of the properties rented out. Some of the property has natural gas wells on it that generates royalties. It's my understanding that neither of those two qualify as earned income. However, my father also owns a walnut orchard that's not under a rental agreement. They do pay someone to harvest the walnuts, but it's not on a rental basis. They both actively participate in the upkeep of the orchard. Again, the property is in my father's name, but would this not constitute earned income? And would my mother not be able to contribute to an IRA on a spousal basis? Their total income, despite all these streams, doesn't exceed the income cap. If you can answer this, I'd appreciate it, even though I still won't learn anything. Love the show, Sheldon. Well, when it comes to retirement contributions, it boils down to kind of two sides of the equation. Number one, do you have an employer-sponsored plan? So you didn't say anything about that. doesn't sound like mom has a job outside of helping out at the farm. So she kind of checks the boxes. I don't have a plan available to me. The second side of it is the income requirements. And if you're under the income requirements for, for the contribution, you're good. And then kind of that third angle, so to speak, is your spouse gets to do something anyway, even if they're not working. So based on what you told me, I don't see why mom can't contribute to an IRA or a Roth for that matter. The IRA will give her the tax deduction. Your father may have 
a workplace plan that he's established or something like that. And if he did, I don't know why he wouldn't include mom in that plan, frankly. But um, even so, even if he doesn't have a workplace plan, I don't know why he wouldn't be able to contribute something as well. You said you're under the income limit. So seems okay. Best help with this is going to be on the tax guy, though. I'm imagining somebody's helping them with their taxes. The great thing about the tax software for CPAs is they can literally check a box that says, maximize the contributions to my accounts. <laughs> and it tells them all the places they can put the money and exactly how much they can put there without having to uh, try to guess and move the move the money around and all that sort of stuff. So, so it sounds like you should be able to, but again, you're going to double check with your tax preparer or CPA just to double check how much. Yeah, absolutely. If it's limited. A lot of these tax-related questions should go through a tax professional, not just through two dudes in their mom's basement. <laughs> two dudes on the internet? <laughs> Two, two dudes you don't know on the internet. Well, Joe said, OG said. It's a great defense, by the way, when you're in tax court. I was listening to this podcast and the guy I've never met with a bag on his head said. He said. Yeah. He said it's totally legal. Thanks for that question. And you know what, OG? My coffee cup's running out of coffee. Doug uh, looks like he's got some exciting, scintillating trivia for us. Drumming his fingers over in the corner, like looking at his watch going. Come on, guys. It's, so, it's my turn. It's so annoying. Uh, let's let him have his moment in the sun, and uh, we'll be right back. Hey there, trivia nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Today, with a dose of trivia that's 100% gluten-free. Check this out. Apparently, gas prices are through the roof, the highest they've been in three years. According to Consumer Reports, when you brake and accelerate too fast... How many miles per gallon do you lose? I'll be back with a 100% fat-free answer in just a moment. Thanks to College Backer for supporting Stacking Benjamins. You know, a college education can be well worth it, OG, but it's also incredibly expensive. Just ask me. It cost me all of my hair. Well, nearly all of my hair. College. No, there's still like two pieces up there. I see them. <laughs> yeah. They it's both, like Homer Simpson. They, they both uh, do very well. College Backer is the easiest way to save for college with help from family and friends. Check out College Backer if you want to help your kids avoid large student loans. Here's what College Backer does. They will help you find a great 529 plan that has tax-free growth and tax-free withdrawals. College Backer also gives you a simple custom link like collegebacker.com forward slash Joe for you to share, which makes it easy for family and friends to help you and your kids save for college. You just share that link with them and they can go right to that account. Kids grow up faster than you think. Imagine turning some of those holiday and birthday toys they never play with into college savings. Sign up at collegebacker.com SB and get a $10 match when you select start saving for college today for your child or you select give the gift of college savings to kick off somebody else's college fund collegebacker.com slash SB to sign up and to begin a new college fund. Stacky Benjamins is also supported by RX Bar, my go-to snack after my morning run. You know, I've been talking about blueberry a lot. The chocolate and sea salt one. We actually, we did a 25-mile bike ride yesterday and chocolate and sea salt for the win. Good Came st- in handy, huh? Oh, good stuff. It's just so convenient to carry that stuff with you as opposed to like, you know, you you got to carry like what 30 bucks now to go to McDonald's if you want to stop on your bike ride. You know? Just what I and need then, is a Big Mac halfway through. 
like a whole big pound of like McDonald's salty fries. Oh my goodness. In a 77 ounce Coke. See, that that doesn't even <laughs> sound good. Slashing around as you're riding your bike. Loosh, loosh. Uh, or you can go RX bar. Yes, RX bar is the whole food protein bar made with 100% whole ingredients and no BS like added sugar, artificial color, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. Did I say preservatives? Yes. Yes. RX bars, that's the new thing. RX bars are made with a few simple clean ingredients where every ingredient serves a purpose. For example, the egg whites are a main source of protein that's easy for your body to absorb. RX bars are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free. You know, it's hard to make money if you can't think and if you can't function. An RX bar pulls you through for the win. To make money, you got to be able to operate. And RX bars come in 11 delicious flavor varieties, whether you like sweet and savory, chocolate, or fruit flavors. I, I've now changed my opinion because I was on the blueberry kick. I, I'll go with both. I'll go with all. How about that? All the above. There's an RX bar for you. Real food ingredients actually taste good. You can actually taste the cocoa, the real fruit, the spices like sea salt. They're ideal for breakfast on the go, snack at the office, throwing your bag for the plane, toss in your backpack for a bike ride or a hike. That's what we just did per your post-workout snacks. Here's what you get when you go to rxbar.com slash SB, 25% off your first order, OG, and use the promo code SB. That's rxbar.com slash SB, promo code SB. Hey there, fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today we're throwing in your trivia answer for no additional fee. Here was the question. According to Consumer Reports, when you brake and accelerate too fast, how many miles per gallon do you lose? According to their tests, Consumer Reports says that braking or accelerating too quickly can cause you to lose about three miles per gallon. Whoa! I was going to put the brakes on this question, but it seems like now I'm just going to ease on out of here, you know, real gentle on that accelerator there. See ya! I love letters episodes, but I especially like, OG, the Haven Lifeline. So why don't we throw that out, huh? We'll tackle some of life's or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends over at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they're disrupting the life insurance industry by focusing on what you value most. Uh, definitely trips to Disney, and uh, today it's Doug's trivia. <laughs> or your family and your time. It's why they created a simple way to buy affordable, dependable life insurance online. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free estimate for coverage and to learn about life insurance the modern way. And guess what? The Haven Lifeline OG is empty, which means we're going back to the mailbag for today's Haven Lifeline. No shirt for you. This one is uh, from Cooney. Cooney says, hello, Joe and OG. Recently on a podcast, you talked about starting with a goal and working backwards. You'd mentioned one of the factors is the rate of return. I calculated I can make my goal with a 5% rate of return by age 65 as long as I consistently put the same away, put put about the same amount away as I currently do. How do you calculate your return rate? While most people at their retirement account go on autopilot from high risk, to less and less risk as they get closer to retirement. I know OG believes you should stay mostly all stocks, even up to retirement. If you come up with a plan with a set rate of return, are you just telling the person to stay the course? Or do you start out higher risk and scale back as they get closer to retirement age? Since I'm young, 
I currently have my work retirement account, Roth IRA and Autopilot, and they're currently 80-20 and 90-10 stocks to bonds. Uh, thanks for the question, Cooney. A couple of good questions. We haven't talked about this in a few weeks, OG. Let's talk about yeah. uh, your goal and working backwards. I think the big miss when it comes to calculating your retirement plan or any sort of goal is solving for how much money you have to save or solving for the lump sum required as opposed to solving for the required rate of return. You know, most people have a certain amount of discretionary income that they can save, right? If, you, if you're sitting down with somebody and you're building a financial plan and you say, hey, so to reach your goals, you only need to save $3,000 a month, but they make $4,000 a month. That's, it's terribly unrealistic and it's not going to happen in a million years. But if they're already saving $1,000 and you, and, and that's kind of a given, you know what I mean? So I think a lot of those calculators online are, are a little, uh, misleading because it says, Oh, to reach your goal, you only need to save $2,200 a month. It's like, well, what if I don't have $2,200 a month? And then you plug in, Oh, I'm going to get eight or I'm going to get 10 or whatever. I find it a lot easier to work backwards from, here's how much money I need to live on to, to maintain the same standard of living that I'm used to right now. And so you can solve for that. You can figure out what your lifestyle costs are, add inflation to that over the period of time. I'm 40. So if I want to think about what, how much money do I need when I'm 60, I can just take my lifestyle expenses, multiply by inflation for 20 years and come up with a annual income that I need, right? Divide that into 4%, come up with this, roughly the ballpark uh, uh, lump sum that I need. Now I'm going to solve for my my required rate of return, and that's going to be X percent. In Cooney's example here, said uh, roughly 5.5% or something, right? 6%. 5, yeah. So that gives you options when it's that low, right? So you can say, okay, because that required rate of return is so low, I can maybe try to reach my goal a little bit sooner. I can save a little bit less is always slippery, by the way, but I could save a little bit less and, and still be on track for my goal. Um, I could plan on spending more when I get to my goal time period. So I like that approach because it, it opens up more flexibility, I think, than um, than just uh, plugging in random, you know, savings numbers that maybe are unrealistic. You know, I will tell you that the one thing that is kind of hard to calculate without some really good tools is the ability to to, to represent rising savings. Right. So if you say, hey, I'm saving a thousand dollars a month today, well, in 10 years from now, hopefully you're saving more. Right. You're making more money just to regular inflation pay raises. So uh, that's kind of hard to do on a regular HP calculator or something like that. But um, Excel and some other better programs can help with that. As far as the uh, conversation around investment risk tolerance or how much stock ownership you should have as you approach retirement, <laughs> there's an interesting thing here that uh, that Cooney said, which was. OG recommends right up to retirement, keeping your stock account. No, 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 not right up to retirement. Throughout your lifetime, keeping the same stock allocation. That being said, we got to set the game up to win, right? And one of the things that we do is visit with clients and talk to them about where are the parameters where you will totally freak out? Because the number one thing to investor success is not how much stocks you have, what percent stock allocation you have. It's not you know, your fund is 0.0006% cost and mine is 0.0008%. So, you know, hi, you're better than me or whatever. You know what I mean? It's not about that stuff. At the end of the day, the single determinant to long-term investor success is investor behavior. Proven time and time again in all sorts of studies, 
And it's the decision that you make when the market's down 45% that will determine whether or not you have enough money to retire. And in all likelihood, that decision will need to be made five or six times. If you're 30, the average market decline happens every five to six years, right? So, so give or take, you've got six or seven substantial market declines before you get to retirement and certainly through retirement. So if you screw up any one of those or God forbid more than one, your likelihood of success goes down quite a bit. So we have to find out through kind of that behavior component, what will you do, right? You have a million dollars today and a year from now you're at 700,000. Saying it that way is a lot different than saying, can you tolerate a 30% decline in your portfolio? Right. Because most people go, oh, 30%? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You go, well, so you make $80,000 a year, and now this year you're down four years worth of earnings. How do you feel? In one year. What happens? And if you tell me straight-faced, I will freak out. I will take all of my money and put it in cash, and then I will leave it there for seven years Trust me when I tell you, there are people waiting for the market to recover from 2008. And you go, well, no, that can't be true. It's very true. There are people who at the Dow was at 16,000 said, oh, it's about to crash. I can't get in now. And then at 20,000, go, well, it, I thought it was going to crash at 16, but now it's at 20. Guaranteed it's about to crash. And then it went to 25. They go, well, it's about to plummet. We can't get in now. You know, all the while missing out on all the dividends and cap appreciation and reinvesting all that stuff. So we have to set up the game to win is what I'm saying here. And at the end of the day, despite my avocation for all stocks all the time, if you look at me and say, if my portfolio goes down 30%, I will freak out to the magnitude that you've never seen before. We can't put you in a position to do that. It's all about you. You know what I mean? And so that that has secondary and tertiary effects to it, sure. right? That means that now you might have to save more money or that means that, Maybe you have to work a little bit longer means that you have to dial back the goal. So I'll do my best to advocate for a large allocation to stocks because I, I just I can't see how logically it makes sense to own anything other than things that are uh, going to grow exponentially over time. But but I also recognize that one fatal mistake at 64 will cripple not only your financial success, but the, again, the dominoes of that, right? Like how it affects your heirs and and your grandkids and your great grandkids and like all those uh secondary yeah. layers of uh of conversation i get a little fired up about this i've got an interesting story maybe we'll talk about later about uh secondary effects but uh anyway sorry that probably wasn't the i just i feel like uh will ferrell in old school when he uh was debating uh who's that james carville that old school political guy from cnn <laughs> like uh, i just blacked out what happened <laughs> Next question comes to us from Nate. Nate uh, writes, I'm a fan of value investing. I have a small cap tilt to my retirement holdings. What's your take on Vanguard's new low-cost factor-based funds, volatility, quality, value, liquidity, momentum? Are they worth building into the equity portion of a typical asset allocation? I have a long time horizon, 20-plus years. Don't worry. I won't learn or apply anything from the feedback you give. Thanks for the question, Nate. What do you think about factor-based funds, OG? Uh, I have no idea what he's talking about when it comes to the Vanguard ones. I've seen these, but that doesn't mean that they're not good or bad. Uh, academic research supports the concept of investing in areas that have successfully uh, outperformed the market over periods of time. And those areas 
are value. Those areas are small companies. Those areas are, in some respects, momentum. Uh, the idea that once things start going up, they tend to continue to go up. You know, herd mentality type of thing. And there's some emerging research in some of the other some of the other areas that he mentioned there. Here's the interesting thing that I think most people get wrong with this. You read a book by Eugene Fama or Ken French or or read the research or uh, we use dimensional funds, you know, in our portfolios and and they're heavy into that ideology. And I agree with it. But the thing that most people miss is they say, oh, well, uh, Professor Fama says that 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 and they cut off the quote right there. And what we miss is he also says that just because all of this has happened in the past, there is no way to predict that it's going to happen in the future. Because if it were true, you'd say, well, shouldn't I just put all of my money in small cap value stocks yeah. that have high momentum? That should give me the, that's like the, that's like the trifecta, right? And it, yeah, except there's no guarantee that all of this pans out in the future. It's worked over the last 90 years. It's, it's been proven sound and it transcends uh, location. It's not just in the U.S. It's also internationally in emerging markets and transcends time. You can look at different periods of time. And this is all true. But none of this matters to the long-term investor in the context of banking on it. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, because all of it could be wrong tomorrow. Well, it'd be great if we could just go back and do what worked yesterday and, and have that, uh, you know, be the, I mean, isn't that what we do? We, we just immediately go back and do that. Well, I get, I've got a great example for this. Factor investing, or some people call it evidence-based investing or whatever, really takes stones, <laughs> to use the pejorative term, right? Here's what I mean by that. In theory, small company stocks should outperform large company stocks. Agreed? Yes. Okay. Through the five-year period ending October 31, 2016, small cap stocks were being smoked by large cap growth. And this is true. Uh, you can see this, I should say, because of how the inflows of the largest S&P 500 ETFs behave. Over that five-year period ending October 31, 2016, from 2011 till 16, where did all the money go? S&P 500 index funds. Of course. Funds. Yes. What did what did happen to be? Now this wasn't this wasn't the effect. This wasn't the cause and effect, but it also happened to be the top performer five straight years. Okay. Large U.S. growth. Okay. From November 1, 2016 to Christmas 2016. So that six-week period. Got it. Fallen, small cap value outperformed large caps so much that by Christmas, December 16, it had erased the five-year lag in performance. And so you think about the behavior, again, going back to the behavior piece of investors, you think about the behavior of, uh, of an investor, right? So, so you, you kind of jump on this I'm going to be factor-based investing train. Small cap should beat large cap. Value should beat growth. And year one, you get your head kicked in. S&P 500 beat everybody. You go, okay, no problem. Year two, get your head kicked in. S&P 500 beat everybody. Year three, year four, it's almost the end of year five. And you are getting trucked nine ways to Sunday. 
you know, you're watching your S&P fund, which is a small percentage of your allocation, up 20, up 25, up 11. And here's your small cap fund, minus two, plus six. Asleep at the wheel. Right? Just, you're going, but, but the factor investing, Eugene Famous said. And so you go, Halloween, you just say, screw it. I'm going to put all my money in S&P 500. And in six weeks, the small cap uh, and uh, performance over that six week period of time erased the five years of underperformance. It really is quite volatile investment returns. I'd say. And then you can slightly. Yeah, <laughs> and you can take that another step further, right? So, what was the worst performing investment in 2016? This is behind the curtain stuff here. So, so worst performing investment in 2016, emerging market. Okay. Now, what does an enterprising investor do after they've stayed the course for five straight years? Finally, they're rewarded with their small cap performance, which beats the snot out of large cap for six straight weeks, erases five years of underperformance. They've got this investment that's up 28% in six weeks. Bam. Woohoo. Now, you have to say, yeah, I'm going to take that off the table. You finally won, right? You finally are ahead. Now you got to take that off the table. And what do you have to do? You have to buy emerging market because it's time to rebalance. At the end of the year, or more specifically, Things have performed so volatilely over that six-week period. This was right around the election, if you remember, that now it's time to rebalance, okay? And you have to put money into the thing that was the number one underperformer, minus 15% for 2016. Out of the thing that finally did well, up 30% almost in six weeks. Guts of steel. Yeah. Got to have now, guts of steel. Now, if you did that, 2017, number one performer was emerging market. Ta-da. I wish it worked that synergistically always, but it doesn't. My point is, is that whatever thing you want to subscribe to, there are people out there that day trade oil futures that will tell you plain as day that that is the only way to make money, right? And, they're, and, and in their world, they're right. You know, they make millions of dollars day trading oil futures. There's people out there that, only buy the S&P 500 fund to tell you that's the only way to whatever you subscribe to. There's no wrong one, I don't think. But you can't change. You can't go, well, I've done this for five years. It doesn't work. Yeah, like a uh, like a short term diet, right? Just switching from diet to diet to diet to diet to diet. Well, that's the thing when I when I see um, uh, when I read that book, uh, Stock Market Wizards, which I really like. But what I like about it best is that each of these people has a commitment to whatever their machine is. Yeah. And and they stick with that machine. They don't go from machine to machine to machine to machine. Like they are committed to this one way of doing things. It's the process. It's nothing but the process that they pay attention yep. to. Yeah. Well, and that's what you see. Like, unfortunately, I remember behaving this way when I was a newer advisor. I know that you remember seeing people like this where they, you know, you'd entertain a wholesaler coming in from Franklin Templeton and you go, the Franklin Templeton large cap fund is awesome. And, and magically for the next six weeks, all of your recommendations would be for the Franklin Templeton. Then the MFS guy would show up and buy you lunch, yeah. right? But this still happens every day, everywhere. Yes. And it's not until you, you know, I think have maybe a little gray hair or a little, you know, time under your belt where you finally go, okay, this is the, this is this thing I'm sticking to. This is it's like the it stock. Is. It's it's the whole reason why I believe in stocks for always, not for the long run. But I'm going to write a book. It's going to be plagiarized from Peter Lynch. It's going to say stocks for the always. 
and I'm just going to write what he says. Just, <laughs> just change the cover. Just change the title and have my picture on there instead of his. Right. You know, but that's in my soul now. Thanks for the question. If uh, you've got questions for the show, bring them on. And you, and you, and you want an essay instead of an <laughs> right, answer. Right. And you want OG to start his answer with four score and seven years ago. Uh, it's actually a pretty small statement. Have you have you ever read the Gettysburg Address? It actually is a very short statement. I thought about that right after I said it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it should be really long, but it's like two pages. If you'd like war and peace. There you go. (laughs) Who who wrote that? Tolstoy? Yes. Head to stackybenjamins.com and you'll see questions for the show. Click that link. And you know what? The Haven Lifeline is the way to go. Please Uh, do Haven Lifeline. Because we still have... 1,500 t-shirts here. So Yeah, and we've got a ways to go on these letters also. Uh, thanks for the questions. If you've got big questions, though, and you know what? You're ready to get your financial house in order completely. Time for good help in your corner. OG's taking clients. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash letter O, letter G. That'll lead you to his calendar, and you and he can have a talk in private about not just one question, but about going on the attack with your money. Thanks for all of your questions uh, today. We really appreciate it. And thanks mm-hmm. for hanging out with us, OG, for another episode. Doug, what should we have learned today, man? So what should we have learned today? First, gluten-free trivia is the best trivia. Yeah. Second, your letters, you guys are amazing. But the big lesson... Don't tell Joe and OG you're going to telecommute from now on. Apparently, there's no television watching involved when you telecommute and you still have to do all the work. What's that about? Special thanks to Joe's mom for agreeing to drive to the Sizzler tonight. If gas costs an arm and a leg, I'd prefer to keep mine. Oh, and oh boy, do I have gas. I have gas, let me tell you. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm a lot deeper than you realize. In fact, sometimes I just stand in front of my mirror and reflect. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. got uh, two things for dessert today. 
So we're talking about the secondary effects of investing or not. There's a family story of mine. I'm sure that there's a little bit of telephone game in this, if you know what I mean, where the fish story gets bigger and bigger. But uh, but it goes a lot like this. Uh, Great grandpa had amassed a, quite a sum back in the 1920s of five hundred dollars. All right. Yes. Which actually wasn't that bad money, right? No, I mean, right. He had right. saved it in a coffee can. Well, I'm thinking about the rule of seventy two. Also, how much money that'd be today? Like that'd yeah. be that'd be a lot of money. Yeah. He's watching all his buddies get rich, right? In this uh, crazy thing called the stock market. And so he's trying to figure out what to do with his coffee can money and decides there's two places he could put it. The nice safe secure bank, which is, you know, the preferred location, I think. And then there's this startup company that he wasn't too sure was going to actually do much of anything. I mean, who they sold some weird stuff that probably wasn't going to take off. I mean, it was kind of interesting, but not a lot of people had the money to afford it at the moment. Anyway, so he put his money in the bank, went with the known thing, right? 1925 or 1927 or something, put his money in the bank. Well, fast forward, we all know what happens to the bank account, right? Gone. Instead, where could he have put the money? Small startup company in Detroit called Ford's. There you go. General Motors. Yep. General Motors. Okay. Yep. So I one time for a project in college figured out how much, how much lost. money would have been had great grandpa OG. Wouldn't <laughs> that been funny if his name really was OG? Um put five hundred bucks. And I don't remember the exact answer. I ended up with uh five aunts and uncles. You know, so so now you got to assume a lot of things, right? You got to assume that he f- forgot about it, didn't take his five hundred dollars, grow it to a thousand, and cash out. Right, right, right. Uh, you got to you got to think, hey, he left it in there for three generations, and then finally it comes to me. I have four other aunts and uncles, and I have nineteen cousins. So you know, there's a lot of layers to that family tree, so to speak. So again, you got to assume a lot of stuff, but it worked out to be that at the aunt and uncle level, like my mom and her uh, siblings would have something like three or four million a piece if it was divided equally. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I like doing those exercises. I don't know, several months ago, I was thinking about estate planning. Really cool topic. Like I just kind of sit in my chair in my office and I'm like, I wonder, let me think about estate planning over a, you know, a cigar and a whiskey or something. Wouldn't that be fun? (laughs) That'd be awesome. Nerd. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'd rather do. Yeah, nothing I'd rather do. So I got thinking, and here's what I thought about. I said, okay, I have three children, right? And if each one of my three kids has three kids, then I would have nine grandchildren. And each one of my grandchildren had three kids. I'd have 27 great-grandchildren. And I thought, how much money in today's dollars would be like a super comfortable, I'm out of here, retirement account? Not account, but like income, right? I decided that that number was 25000 a month. Like if I could make twenty five grand a month, I might quit, right? If I if I had an account that paid me twenty five grand a month, maybe I won't be on this show anymore. Not sure. So then I had to think about okay, when would my great grandchild retire? If they all were born on the same day, the soonest great grandchild would retire in one hundred and ten years, okay, give or take. So that's age sixty in my assumptions, and they need three hundred thousand dollars a year to live on. In today's dollars, which inflated for 110 years is a whole bunch more. And I got 27 of them. I can't just leave to one great grandchild. I can leave 27. So 
how much money do I need to have in a bucket to pay a stream of income to my 27 great grandchildren in today's value of $25,000 a month once they reach retirement? What do you think that number is? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just laughing because why would you even do this? Like, if yeah, if this happens, if I, so the answer is about seven billion. Seven billion dollars. Yeah. So in 110 years, I need seven billion dollars. Yeah. You know, chump change to a guy like you, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but here's the say the twenty four thousand dollar question. Not twenty. It's like here's the seven, seven billion, billion dollar question. question. Yeah. Yeah. How much do I have to put away today? How much do I have to take out of my account, so to speak, or buy a life insurance policy, or whatever the case may be, to say today? If I set this money aside and build a whole bunch of protection around it, legacy issues and all this sort of stuff, how much do I have to set aside today so that in two generations from now, my great-grandchildren never think about money? And we have already established that number seven billion in 110 years. I have no idea. 200 grand. Isn't that really silly? All of a sudden it seems like not that, uh, not that big. I mean, $200,000 is a lot of freaking it, money. It's, it's a lot of money. Especially... It, it, especially if you go, well, now I'm, I got to exclude that from my current plan. <laughs> like if I want to do this, I have to go, well, now I'm negative 200,000 in my, in my, yeah, but still in the big scheme of things, that power of compounding 200,000 yeah. equals 7 billion just seems because I was thinking about great grandpa yeah. and his 500 bucks. Yeah. And I'd have like 2 million yeah. a day or something like that. But, uh, yeah, pretty crazy. I don't know. Very interesting stuff. My other story that I had here real quick, if you've got an extra second, well, it went away. I had it up here on Facebook. I was going to read it, of course. You can't leave stories open on Facebook and then close Facebook because then it just resets to like whatever weird-ass algorithm they think you want to look at your stories in. Which is all the stuff you don't want to see. Yeah. Only one out of seven will get this right. My favorite on the, are the things on uh, Facebook that are like, name your favorite pet's name. I bet there's no matches. <laughs> it's like, okay, Russian hackers. No, thank you. I will not tell you my pet's name, but I also give you my last four of my social and my mother's maiden name at the same time. I bet you can't tell me where you and your spouse met. Right. Dude, that's up. I swear to God, if you scroll through Facebook right now, you will find something like that. And you will find people who, who posted to it. They're like, oh, it's great. We met in Jamaica. You're like, OK, got that piece of information. And there it goes. So here you go. I found the story here. This one really hits home for you, I know. Scott Pruitt, name sound familiar? Head of the uh, EPA? Yes. The thing is, he can't fly coach. It could kill him. That is the argument that EPA Administrator uh, Scott Pruitt's security detail stated, requesting pricey travel in a memo obtained by the Washington Post. We believe that continued use of coach seats would endanger his life and therefore respectfully ask that he be placed in business or first-class accommodations. I tell Cheryl that every time we get on a plane. I was going to say, now that explains the email you sent me about the plane ticket you wanted to buy to uh, to FinCon. Like, for my safety, <laughs> due to my celebrity status. Yeah. I need to Yeah, be, to the three tour stops. No, 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 you guys sit and coach. Yeah. He has uh, spent $3 million on first-class travel and hotel stays. So no, Joe, you can't fly first class to all of our tour stops because of your safety and security. Bummer. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do 
just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.